bless and anoint this new series and these messages about finding a home for you in our lives and our hearts. Lord, help me to be your vessel. Pour through me and out of me despite my inadequacies. For your sake, I pray. Amen. So this series that I'm about to begin is based on a book, and, and some of you have heard me talk a lot about an author that's become a favorite of mine here lately and even a friend, and it's not about him. He'd be the first one to tell you that. You know, It's that God has given him some pretty revolutionary insights that are really appropriate for our time. Um, and they've been revolutionary for me too. And more than that, they've been affirming like, like there are certain things that I've believed and, and preached and taught and shared. Gosh, even when I was in high school, <laughs> I can remember when I was in high school, um, in my, the beginning of my junior year, the summer before my junior year in high school, my dad's company uh, rearranged itself, you know, mergers and acquisitions and all that jazz. And we ended up in Oklahoma after living in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania for uh, most of the influential years of my life, and and uh, and all of a sudden, you know, this Catholic kid from the East is surrounded by all these Southern Baptists and and Bible Belt friends, and so we had in the high school a prayer group that met every. Uh, I can't remember if we met weekly or or daily. I can't remember now, and and. Uh, I found that I had a tendency to rattle people with some of my radical observations. <laughs> and, and, and it, you know, and I was just dumb and didn't know enough in those days to, to regulate my mouth very well. And I only grew out of it about three years ago, I think. So even now, I'm not so sure. But, and, and I was explaining, we were talking a little while ago in the back as we were getting ready about um, some of the places that I'd served as a pastor. Uh, and then even before that, I did some lay preaching. And, and I did all of that in a kind of unconventional way. <laughs> and it just seems like the story of my life has always been uh, radical. Um, I don't, there's a purpose that I'm driving at here, but I, I just... It's not that I consider myself that really unique or special, and this isn't meant to serve uh, me as much as to say, when I started reading some of the books by Frank Viola, I thought, oh my gosh, a kindred spirit. I can relate to this guy. I found somebody who grew up similarly to me, although he came from a Pentecostal background, but, but, but someone who grew up spiritually in a similar way that I did. That, that it was more than just going to church for me. You know, that this was about a relationship with God and the Son of God and the Holy Spirit. And it was like that for me even when I was really young. I just didn't have very much language for it. I didn't have a, a, a lot of outlet for it. And so I did most of my sort of unraveling and sorting it out with my mouth because, you know, talk, 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 right? And, and the people around me would just kind of like, well, they had a, three or four common reactions. One of them was, would you just shut up, right? You know, and then there were people around me who were like, what are you talking about? Like, like because it made them uncomfortable. 
you know, the, the things I would say and the things I was thinking about God were just, they made people uncomfortable. And then other people would go, wow, you know, I never really thought of it like that. And so that's really been the story of my life. And I haven't changed much. I'm still pretty much the same guy now here, you know, going on 60 years, you know, and it's like, wow, how did this happen? Well, it was a God thing. And I found with these books uh, and, and this acquaintance with their author, a kindred spirit. And it meant so much to me to just know that I wasn't at least any more off my rocker than he is. And, and the truth is, is, his books sell like crazy. And there's a lot of these books out there. And so it's, it's been a really radically affirming for me. And so I told him recently in a message, I said, I'm, I'm actually going to preach a series of sermons based on one of your books. And he said, cool. And I said, how do you feel about that? And he says, just get it right. <laughs> you know, like, okay, fair enough. Um, and this, this book then that I'm referring to for this series is called God's Favorite Place on Earth. And in this book, Frank basically says, the premise of the book is basically that Jesus had a place that he went to regularly to be revived and refueled and, and cared for. And it's none of the places that you would expect, but it's so obvious once you begin to observe carefully what's going on. There's a little town called Bethany, just a couple of miles from Jerusalem where Mary and Martha and Lazarus and their dad lived. And he went there all the time. And I don't have a particular passage to read to you because what I would have to do in order to, to kind of set the stage is to pull out a concordance and, and begin to show you how many times Bethany is mentioned in the New Testament, in the Gospels. And then you, you see... Well, Jesus did all these amazing things. He preached these words. He worked these miracles. He encountered the, the ire and, and, and the, the distrust of the Pharisees and, and the political machinations of the uh, uh, Sadducees. And, and, you know, he encountered all of this. And then he went to Bethany. And Bethany turns out to be the place where he raised his, one of his dearest friends from the grave, Lazarus. Bethany was a place where a woman washed his feet with her tears. Bethany was a place where all of his friends were welcome. And so it didn't matter if he showed up, you know, seven o'clock at night after the sun had gone down and he had 12 or 40 people in tow. <laughs> Mary and Martha would feed him and they weren't rich. They were just middle class people. And so you begin to realize that it wasn't Nazareth. Nazareth rejected him. Because you know how it is in a family. You know, do, do I need to even tell you? And, and if perchance one of my family members of my family of origin happens to be watching this, I apologize. But fact is, y'all thought I was nuts most of the time. <laughs> and, and I remember vividly the day that I had to tell my parents and, and then they told my brothers and sisters that I was quitting my career job just after my fifth 
child entered the world and second child was spina bifida and I was quitting my career job and I was gonna start pastoring a church and going to school at the same time. I was 35 years old, five children, two with spina bifida, a wife who had to stay at home and care for those children, especially the ones with spina bifida. And, and I was gonna live in a parsonage and I was going to go to school and I was gonna pastor churches and I got some strong talks from caring family members. But they thought I was nuts. And so every time I hear how Jesus was rejected in Nazareth by his own community, because you know, Jesus would say, well, prophets welcome everywhere except his own hometown. But you got to understand that towns in those days, not unlike small towns in America, maybe 50 years ago, most of the people were related or at least they went to school together. You know, you could go to a little town like Jasper, say, 50 years ago. Well, the mayor and the police chief probably went to high school together, right? You know, they knew each other. They were probably distantly related in some way or another. So you can imagine Nazareth, an even more compact little community. They all knew Jesus, and, you know, he was the kid whose mother had questionable character, whose father was, well, just a really good guy and, and downright saintly considering what he had to put up with, right? She, he's this little kid who is guilty by association, right? You know, because that's what we do to children, right? If you're, if you're a child of a person with a reputation, then you get hurt, not because you deserve it, but because you just happen to be associated with someone who's got a bad reputation. And that's what we do, right? Especially in small communities. And, and, and so it shouldn't surprise you that people said, does anything good come from Nazareth? You know, so scratch that one off the list. That's no place for Jesus to feel at home. Capernaum sounds good because in Capernaum, Capernaum, right? <laughs> Capernaum, I can't roll my tongue. And, and you, go, you go to Capernaum and you go, well, that was kind of his base of operations, Peter's home, and, and, and you, know, you think, well, that, that's his home away from home. But do you remember when Jesus said, he named like 10 cities, he named several cities, and he said, you know, woe to you, because pretty soon there's not going to be anything left here. You had the Christ, the son of the living God right here operating out of this man's house and you rejected it. And you know, you can go to Capernaum today and it's an archeological dig. <laughs> it's not the worldwide headquarters of Jesus Christ. <laughs> but he operated out of Capernaum for several months and you know, about two years or so, just exclusively traveling to the various towns in Galilee called the Decapolis or the 10 towns or 10 cities. And, and, and he preached all over the place and he had better luck in some of the pagan villages than he did in the Jewish villages. So strike that one off the list. So where's a home for Jesus? Where's a place for him to be at home? It turns out it's Bethany. A tiny little village, like, like my first church appointment, which didn't inspire my family to have greater confidence because the town that I was going to serve, the church I was going to serve, was the smallest and the least of all the churches in this little town that didn't even have a stoplight. You just had to slow down a little bit driving through town. 
but you didn't even have to come to a stop. This is where Jesus finds a home. And he finds a home not just because the town is convenient to the place where the most dramatic events of his life occur, but because the people in this town received him openly, accepting him entirely as their Lord and Savior. And they loved him. They adored him. They saw all that he was, and yet they met his human needs so completely that they had this this remarkable comprehension of his fully human nature and his fully divine nature, and they responded to both with open hearts and minds. So what's the whole point of this series? It's about seeing if we can't discover what it takes to be Bethany Christians, responding to everything he is, both human and divine, with open hearts and open minds so that we can be a home in ourselves for him, a place he wants to go, wants to be. That's the gist of the series. To really make sense of what we're going to talk about, we have to come back to a visit to uh, something that's very ancient in Scripture and predates Scripture, really a sort of God-ordained design for marriage for God's people back in the day uh, days of Moses and, you know, got written down in the days of Moses, but they were kind of doing it this way even before that. And so in order to understand why Jesus came and why Jesus desires a home in us and with us, we need to grasp the Father, the Heavenly Father's understanding of home. And, and once we get a handle on that, we begin to realize this amazing, uncomplicated, but challenging plan that God has for us that's outlined by the Apostle Paul beautifully in uh, the letters to the Church of Colossae and the one entitled Ephesians. But Jesus says, in my Father's house, my Father's house has many rooms, and if it were not so, I would have told you and I'm going there to prepare a place for you. He told them this. Now, in the Mosaic tradition, the, Moses, the law of Moses, basically, in a Christian or a Christian Jewish marriage, in, in the ancient tradition, a father would choose the suitable bride for the son. Dad would find the woman that he thought was most ideally suited for his son. And he'd probably do a little negotiating with her father, And then he would go to his son and say, that's the one for you right there. And then the groom-to-be, the son, would say, okay, I'll go make a proposal of marriage to her. And so they would sit at a table, the son and the father on one side and the potential bride and her father on the other side of the table. and, And the bridegroom would to be would would propose marriage to her. And then he would pour some wine into a cup and pass it over to her. If she took the cup and drank from it, she was accepting the marriage proposal. And by drinking from that cup, affirming a covenant that had just been made. So so the, the marriage proposal was a sort of verbal contract 
And her drinking from the cup of wine was her indication that she was signing on to that contract. And at that point, they're betrothed. And it's a legally binding arrangement, which means that they would have to go through the legal procedures for a divorce to get out of this betrothal. So they're not married and consummation hasn't come, but they are in all other respects tied through this covenant. So the father chose this person for her son, for his son rather, and then the son proposes to the bride with the cup. If she pushes it away, she's rejecting the proposal. If she drinks from the cup, she's accepted the proposal and they are betrothed. In the meantime, he goes back to prepare a place in his father's house for her to come for a wedding ceremony and for what will be a, a honeymoon. He prepares the bridal suite or the honeymoon chamber at her father, his father's house. And she knows that this will probably be about a year to two year process uh, of betrothal. And in the meantime, he sends her gifts regularly to kind of remind her that he's coming and he hasn't forgotten her. He sends her gifts that enhance all the things that he thinks is so beautiful about her. You know, he's, I love your eyes. So he sends gifts that enhance her eyes. Isn't this perfect for Valentine's Day? He sends gifts that enhance her beauty and make her even more remarkable in his eyes. And all the while reminding her to get her stuff ready, to be ready because at a moment's notice, he's going to call out and say, I'm coming for you, honey. And he's on his way to collect his bride and bring her back to the father's house. And there, there will be a huge party and they enter into the bridal chamber that he's prepared and the bridegroom's best man stands by the door and when, when the bridegroom says the word, the bride's, bridegroom's best man announces the consummation and the marriage is complete. And then the seven days of partying happens. So this is, this is the tradition. Some of you probably have raced ahead in your vast knowledge of scripture and things, and you probably already figured out that there's a tremendous parallel in all of this with the story of Christ and his church. You see, the father's chosen a bride for the son, and it's the body of Christ, the church with a capital C. And he has presented her with a proposal that we celebrate every time we celebrate the Lord's table, right? He presents a cup. And when we take from the cup, we're accepting the proposal. And that puts us in a covenant relationship with the son. And the understanding is, is that we're forever tied to the son, waiting for his return. And in the meantime, he sends gifts to us. The Apostle Paul will talk about those as spiritual gifts, faith, hope, love, joy, intercession with prayer, all sorts of remarkable gifts that you'll have. But, but there are reminders daily and, and regularly that your bridegroom is in love with you and on his way to collect you. And in the meantime, let these things enhance the very beauty that he sees in you. And so each is given gifts according to what the Savior sees in that person. And so when you use your spiritual gifts, you please him. 
And it lets him know that you are looking forward to his coming. So the Lord God's all about home. He's all about home. The, the whole plan, if you think about it, goes back to Genesis where God creates a place on earth in the middle of all the chaos. I mean, there's a whole story there that we've covered in the Wednesday night Bible study. There's a whole story about the created order and the chaos that existed when it seems Satan rules the earth. And in the middle of all this chaos, there's this garden that is called paradise, Eden. And in this garden, God can be at home with the man that he created, with the humanity that God created. And that God even gives an example of what God has in mind through Adam or the Adam, which means the human being, because he takes the perfect companion from the side of the man. Rather than creating a new thing, he draws from his created being, Adam, the one who will be his life companion. Think ahead to Jesus whose side was pierced and we knew the covenant was complete but that he fulfills through his death on the cross because they checked to see if he was really dead by sticking a spear in his side and a few drops of serum pull out to pour out and that's it. They said, no, he's, he's, there is no life left in him. His blood has been entirely shed. And so the church was born from Jesus' side in the same sort of way that Adam's side gave birth to his companion who would be his bride. And so Jesus has given birth to what will be his bride. And throughout the New Testament, we hear language over and over again about the bride of Christ. And in the Revelation especially, we hear about the bride of Christ and we understand that, that the whole story of Revelation is a story of how Christ is coming to claim his bride and take her back to the Father's house in order that they could consummate the relationship the way it was intended back in the very beginning and there will be this eternal joy, this relationship between Christ and Christ's bride. It's all about houses. It's all about letting him have a place to live with us and in us while on earth, living under the shadow of sin, but having been spared from the consequences of sin, he seeks to dwell in us and to have the kind of relationship with us that he had with the people in Bethany. And all of that culminates in his physical return when he physically takes us to the Father's house which in the book of Revelation eventually descends to the earth and becomes here. <laughs> and so we're, we're coming home to a place we've lived on and yet haven't fully experienced. So the homecoming, the love of a bridegroom for his precious bride, God's beloved creation and his beloved son being united in Harmony for all eternity. These are all the themes that we're going to visit through this series as we look at God's uh, favorite place on earth, which is not literally Bethany. In fact, when you go there today, 
I think there's a sign that marks that this is Bethany and somewhere around here there was even a place where you know, Mary Martha lived, right? But, but, but you can't even tell when you're there now. It's just a suburb of Jerusalem and you don't know when you've gone from one part of that area to another. And so it isn't about the place. It's about the people, about their love for Christ. Jesus, the man, and Christ, the son of God. And this is what we wanna seek Because as the Apostle Paul says, we're the chosen people of God, holy and dearly loved. And this series will be a reminder to us to act like it. Let us pray. Thank you, God, for your word now. Burn it upon our hearts. Change our nature, we pray. Help us to begin opening our hearts and minds to make a home for you in our lives Help us to be the Bethany people that we need to be. For your name's sake, we pray. Amen.